It's on. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to Luke chapter 1 this morning. Luke chapter 1. Continuing our study in the life of Christ. Introducing the mother of the humanity, we often call her. Luke 1.26 In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph and of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. This was our subject last week. We continue on again with that here this morning. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that we are filled with the Spirit and equipped to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness in our lives day by day. And we ask for your hand of blessing upon our time of study this morning. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, last week I gave you a handout on uh, Mary, printed from the Moody Handbook of Theology. Uh, A look at Mariology or Mariolatry, as the terms have become known. An examination of the role of Mary presently in the Roman Catholic Church and why it is that she is exalted and worshipped and so forth. Um, I had thought that we might branch out into further studies of this nature. And then uh, in the week intervening from last week till this morning, I found what a daunting task that is. That may yet be a future area of study and really one that would encompass a whole realm all on its own. Uh, we'll touch upon it a little bit more this morning, but I think for the most part, much of that that we're going to have to leave for future studies. The um, look at Mary as far as Scripture is concerned, I think we will look at from this standpoint, and uh, we'll introduce her here in this context of Luke chapter 1, and then we'll do just a brief uh, survey of Mary in the Gospels so far as she's recorded there, and then I think we, uh, we can let it go at that point. Um, I'll also put the projector on and show you uh, uh, some of the tools that are available for study and further further research and so forth, and we may look at those here as well. All right, as we've already read, uh, the angel was sent in verse 26, sent to this girl named Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. And uh, we'll come back. I imagine by next week and give you a verse-by-verse breakdown on this, including the exegesis of the text. The total impact of this from uh, every single verse you look at is the aspect of grace. Even the title, Favored One, identifies Mary as an object of grace, that she has been selected on the basis of grace. Nothing that she has earned, nothing that she has deserved, nothing in her character that, that, uh, that entitled her to become the mother of our Savior and so forth. Uh, Even the reference to favored one is simply an identification of grace. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And there is the introduction of grace once again. You have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now this is the first expansion, if you will, or the first um, clarification of the seed of promise since that time, since the time of David. If you recall, we have on a number of occasions now taken you through the seed of the woman promise, beginning with Genesis chapter 3. And we have shown you how at various stages along the way that scope was narrowed. For example, uh, following the flood, when you had the divisions of humanity broken down into Ham, Shem, and Japheth, uh, the, uh, the Lord, Jehovah, is called the God of Shem. And we narrow down the scope in the, in the search for the seed of the woman down to the line of Shem, and we can, we can discount Japheth and Ham as being uh, producers of the Christ. 
Even within the line of Shem, there are further divisions when you get to Genesis chapter 12 and you recognize that Abraham has been set apart and that it is through Abraham and his seed that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So we're no longer searching through all the Semitic peoples to try to find the coming Christ. We can limit it to the descendants of Abraham among all the other Semitic peoples of the world. Furthermore, further uh, distinctions that occur in the line of uh, not only Abraham, but his descendant Isaac his, and Isaac's descendant Jacob. And that uh, God is, in fact, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not only the God of Shem, but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That becomes very important uh, because that allows us to discount Ishmael, allows us to discount Esau, the other descendants of Abraham that are not the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Genesis uh, 49, furthermore, narrows the scope even more. It's not just any son of Jacob. Remember, Jacob had 12 sons, 12 tribes, but the Christ is going to come from the tribe of Judah. And so all throughout Scripture, from, from uh, Adam on, what we have is a narrowing of, that, of the scope of, of anticipation for the coming of Christ. And we are as narrow as we get for centuries with looking at the tribe of Judah. Until a thousand years later, uh, the the uh, wonderful promises that are made to David, the Davidic covenant becomes a central feature of the Old Testament that really needs to be studied, because a thousand years after Abraham and a thousand years before Christ comes the final of the narrowings, which is the seed of David. Not not we're not looking for anybody from the tribe of Judah now, but only those from the tribe of Judah that are descended from David. And that becomes the narrowest view that we have. Now, there are other prophecies and so forth. For instance, the birthplace in Bethlehem is mentioned. The uh, born of a virgin in Isaiah 7.14 becomes very important. But we're still looking for the line of David is the narrowest that this, uh, that this uh, prophecy has taken. Well, now in the Gospel of Luke, uh, we have a virgin in accordance with uh, uh, Isaiah 7.14. And uh, she's going to have a baby in Bethlehem in accordance with Micah chapter 5. <coughs> and so we see <coughs> how these things now are fulfilled. And you'll notice the promises that are made to Mary in the uh, scope of verses 32 and 33 are all related to the Davidic covenant. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. So we are now realizing that everything that has been previously spoken of to Abraham down through David is now being fulfilled in Christ. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Now Mary's question in verse 34 we'll spend some more time on next week as well. Just like Zechariah had a question, Zechariah was uh, made his question on the basis of a lack of faith. Mary asked a question and it's interesting that her question is uh, evidently phrased in the form of a question on the basis of faith. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel gives her an answer that is uh, an explanation of the process, an, ex- an explanation of the how. She never doubts the what. She never doubts the promise. She never doubts that this is in fact going to happen. She just simply in faith wants to know how. How is this going to happen? And so the angel explains the how. Uh, if we back up a little bit to Zacharias, you see earlier in the chapter, all of the, uh, the message of the angel of Zacharias going down through verse 17. Then in verse 18, how will I know, Zacharias said to the angel, how will I know this for certain? See, he's not asking about mechanics. He's asking about the validity of the promise itself. How will I know this for certain? How do I know you're telling me the truth? And uh, for I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. (coughs) Then it was verse 20. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Zacharias did not reply by the virtue of faith. In fact, he disbelieved. I used that term last week, and uh, there is an important concept there that not only we don't want to think about uh, a, a lack of faith as just simply um, 
a non-activity. It is an activity. It's called unbelief. It's called disbelief. And in fact, when an unbeliever rejects the gospel message, it's not just that, well, they have failed to believe, but actively they have disbelieved. They have disbelieved, and John 3 even equates that with disobedience to the gospel message. So, some of these things will come uh, come up in future studies, particularly salvation studies, when we break down what exactly is the age of accountability and what is that point of gospel hearing, what is belief or disbelief when uh, Scripture describes it as such. So, Zechariah's question on the surface, in verse 18, how will I know this for certain, appears to be similar to Mary's question in verse 34. How can this be? And because Zechariah adds an explanation, for I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years, and Mary adds an explanation, uh, since I am a virgin, the, the, the parallels between those two questions appear to be pretty close. But the responses by the angel are quite different. In that Zacharias is is judged, Zacharias is disciplined, and specifically his lack of faith is acknowledged, and Mary is not judged, Mary is not disciplined, and there is no statement with respect to Mary's faith. The uh, explanation is simply given in terms of the mechanics, the process, the how is this going to happen. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the the holy child shall be called the Son of God. There will be no human father in this equation. And that's what Mary was asking. Mary's asking, I am a virgin. How is this pregnancy going to take place? And he explains that it's God himself that is going to impregnate her, which is the reason for the holy child being called the Son of God, which was part of that uh, promise up in verse 32. All right. So, Mary's response here, or let me read the rest of this, verse 36. And behold, even your relative, Elizabeth, has also conceived a son in her old age. And I made brief reference to this last week. We do not know the specific relation between Mary and Elizabeth. The term there, relative, is a general term that refers to somebody somehow related. It could be a, a sister, could be a cousin, could be a distant cousin. There's no way to, to, to specifically narrow it down. We know that Elizabeth is of the daughters of Aaron, and we know that that's a Levitical tribe, and we know that Mary is of the line of David, which is the tribe of Judah. So however they're related, it's not you know immediate family, but it is at some distant relation there. She who is called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So she is, uh, she believed the promise as it was given. She asked how the process was going to work. And uh, with, with that explanation, she then uh, says, Very well, not my will, but thine be done. In similar fashion to Christ himself. Now, this is the introduction to the virgin as far as the gospel of Luke is concerned. The uh, visit that follows when she goes to visit with Mary is described, in, or with Elizabeth, is described in verses 39 through uh, 45. The famous song, the Magnificat, that's assigned to Mary here in verses 46 and following. That's remarkable in itself, and uh, we'll spend some time on that. It is a psalm, just like the psalms of our Old Testament, and it's uh, remarkable how it shows a grounding in the scriptures that Mary had. Because it shows a content of doctrine. It shows a content of teaching that she understood. Much as Zechariah's song at the end of, the, uh, of chapter 1 shows a, uh, a knowledge of doctrine that's quite remarkable there. So we'll spend some time on those as well. Alright, let's get another look at Mary this morning before we proceed to some other areas. It, it kind of boggles the mind a little bit, and if, if and when we do follow up on what we did last week with some additional Mariology or Mariolatry type studies, part of it's going to be difficult for us to understand uh, unless you have a Catholic background. <laughs> then maybe you'll understand part of it a little bit more, but even in those instances, it may be hard to understand coming from the perspective you have now as a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. We uh, we can look to, 
And we do look to Christ as the mediator between God and man, for there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, and we understand that he is the source of our salvation. It sometimes boggles the mind that Mary takes such a predominant role and that so many in the Roman Catholic Church are looking to Mary as their mediator, looking to Mary as the source of all blessings, looking to Mary as the provider of all things. And uh, so some of these future studies may in fact become... uh, become uh, very important for us. All right, let's look at a couple of things, and I will get this up and running for you on the screen. Um, in fact, I'll even pull a couple of web pages up for you to let you look at some reference books and some materials that, uh, that I recommend. We did, uh, and at some point I'll, I'll ask Cliff to, uh, to put... Um, some of these links on our site so that uh, you can pull them up yourself. One of the most important books in my library, I have read it probably a dozen times through, is um, The Two Babylons by Alexander Hislop. And uh, one of these pages here even has photographs attached to it that, uh, there it is. In fact, that's even the same edition I have with the red cover and everything. Called The Two Babylons by Alexander Hislop. Papal worship proved to be the worship of Nimrod and his wife. First published as a pamphlet in 1853, greatly expanded in 1858. Interesting, here's a book that's nearly 150 years old. It's been attacked, it's been impugned, it's been ridiculed, it's been mocked. Um... But it has not, in my mind, been effectively refuted point by point in the observations that it makes. And just a look at the table of contents will outline for you kind of the course of the argument. Um, I recommend it to everybody, but I also recognize that it is very difficult to read. Uh, that there are so many footnotes, that there are so many, uh, because it's so well documented and so well footnoted and so so well uh, put together that... Oftentimes, uh, reading through a particular chapter becomes a chore. Uh, but chapter by chapter, if you can work your way through it and keep some of the names straight, um, it is a, a very valuable work. Um, this webpage here simply gives the outline. In fact, the whole thing is online, available online. You don't even need to buy it if you want to just read it online. Um, he begins after the introduction with the uh, distinctive character of the two systems. And what he's doing is he's comparing modern-day Roman Catholicism, on the one hand, with ancient Babylonian worship on the other. And those are the two worship systems that he's outlining. The ancient Babylonian worship system was mother goddess worship and her miraculous son. And showing the mother goddess and the infant son to be equivalent with the Madonna image of the Roman church with the Virgin Mary and her baby Jesus. And so he outlines the two systems, giving it in the introduction in chapter 1. In chapter 2, he begins to lay the groundwork for this by even um, the first section there is an interesting section on the Trinity and pagan beliefs of the Trinity from ancient times. The, the Babylonian view of Trinity, the Hindu view of Trinity, the Egyptian view of Trinity, the Greek view of Trinity, for example, um, the, the, the pagan nations of antiquity had a form of trinity as a part of their foundation. They very quickly perverted what we understand to be biblical trinity into a variety of different things. And essentially, they would have an eternal, invisible father, a spirit of that God manifested in the form of a uh, goddess mother, and then the offspring of the invisible father and the goddess mother being the miraculous son. And so what they ended up, instead of with a father, son, and Holy Spirit, they end up with an invisible and truly absent father, um, the goddess mother who is the one that, that bestows all blessings upon us through you know, a miraculous baby. And in many cases, that miraculous baby suffers a violent death. And so what's left then is the goddess mother worthy of all worship. Um, and so, having laid the homework or the groundwork by describing ancient uh, Trinity viewpoints, he then breaks down the appearance of the mother and the child and the origin of the child. In chapter 2, if you don't read anything else in the book, chapter 2 is really the, the key to understand. 
Five separate sections afterwards deal with the child in Assyria, the child in Egypt, the child in Greece, the death of the child, and then the deification of the child as the child is miraculously reborn and miraculously brought back to life. And the different, the different uh, mythologies have different mechanisms for this. And then section three highlights the glory of the mother of the child and, and gives the, uh, the full information there. The remainder of the book goes into more of the, the, uh, the festivals and the doctrines, uh, Christmas and Lady Day, why December 25th is so vital in pagan worship, uh, Easter, why the, the spring equinox is so vital in pagan worship, uh, the nativity of St. John, which if you're a Protestant and have been a lifelong Protestant, you've probably never heard of, but the nativity of St. John. Um, what we're looking at here in uh, Luke chapter 1, the, the birth of John the Baptist, well, that particular feast is, is uh, significant in the Roman uh, calendar. The uh, Feast of Assumption is broken down there as well. The different doctrines that are outlined, the Roman doctrines including Mass, Extreme Unction, Purgatory, Prayers for the Dead, uh, some of the rituals and the ceremonies uh, that explain why the various robes are worn, why the vestments are worn, what, uh, what's going on with the, the relics, the rosary, how the rosary was developed. Uh, the sign of the cross in section 6 is an interesting reading as well. Uh, the different religious orders, including the pontiff, the priests, the monks, and the nuns. And then uh, application. I think chapter 7 is good, but by the time you can slug through the first six chapters, you're pretty much exhausted. Uh, but it is information that pertains to the book of Revelation as it relates to the great red dragon, the beast from the sea, the beast from the earth, and uh, the issues there. So, and if you don't want to pay 12 bucks for the book, it's available online and you can just simply browse to whatever page you want and read through it for yourself. All right? So that is a work that I recommend greatly. Um, something to keep in mind Again, as far as why Mary is so exalted, it, it, it seems incongruous for us that if the progression is as such, that, that the Christ is born, um, he, he gives himself on the cross for us, he's, re- he's raised and resurrected, and you and I have come to gospel hearing on that basis and have come to salvation on that basis. Why would we then go from that to worshiping the mother. Okay? That's a progression that's kind of hard to, uh, to, to figure. But it's much easier to recognize that progression if in fact mother worship preceded the cross. And it did. That mother worship goes back to the Tower of Babel. Mother worship goes back to uh, ancient humanity just post-flood. And uh, with that as a basis, then it's easier to understand how it continues to this day. All right? So, all that being said, um, let's just let that go for now. And let's get back to Scripture. Unless, do we have any questions as far as, as, far as that goes? Yes, ma'am. Uh, he had a Church of England background, Anglican background. And the Anglican Church is basically the Catholic Church in England. <laughs> if it was not a true Protestant Reformation in England. It was just simply the desire of King Henry to divorce his wife. The Pope wouldn't let him have a divorce. And so um, they broke from the Roman Church and set up the Church of England. And the Anglican Church is simply the English Catholic Church. Uh, the Episcopal Church in this country is the American English Catholic Church. Uh, so that's why the Episcopal Church in this country is so similar in its liturgy and its ritual and its teaching. Um, the Lutheran Church, for example, is the German Catholic Church. Luther never intended to leave the Church of Rome. He simply wanted to reform the abuses that he, that he saw within it. Um, so there's a lot of similarities there. Yes, ma'am? Oh, no, no. It's, it's very fair, although uh, a lot of the attacks against Hislop say, well, he's just a Catholic basher, uh, and that's not the case. All he's doing, he's, he's, he's putting, on the one hand, the Roman system, and he's out putting, on the other hand, the Babylonian system. And he's saying, here's A and here's B, you look at them. And you can't help but see the identical nature of each one. 
And and that's really what makes him such an effective author. Uh, I think like Velikovsky and other authors, they they don't draw conclusions. They just put, OK, here's A, here's B. Look at them and you, you come to the conclusion. And by by outlining them in the manner that he does, of course, it's obvious what conclusion you're going to come to because it's inescapable when you're when you're looking at A and you're looking at B and they're so identical. And uh, and the things there. But no, he's he's coming from a, an English background, Church of England background in the 1800s. OK. So, by the way, keep in mind, it is not unusual. Um, we know what the adversary is like. We know that he's an imitator. We know that he's a perverter. We know that he takes what God reveals and he twists it. We know that right from the beginning, right from Genesis chapter 3. When he tempted Eve and he said, you know, has God said, thou shalt not eat from any tree in the garden? And he, he perverts the word of God and so forth. Now, keep in mind, the very first gospel promise we have in all of Scripture is what? It's the, the promise of the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. That uh, the seed of the woman uh, was going to crush the serpent's head. And uh, so there's our first promise of a redeemer in all of scripture deals with the seed of the woman so it is not surprising that false religions that then get introduced in the ancient world are going to focus upon a woman because the gospel promise focuses upon a woman and that's why we have the the mother and the child and the miraculous baby and the things that are introduced satanically in terms of false worship systems as perversions of what that original promise truly was the seed of the woman conquering the serpent and uh, and so we have it in in babylon it was ishtar was the goddess mother and and her child and the egyptians it was isis and uh and her son osiris and in the greeks uh they, they just had the different names by the time you get to uh to the roman pantheon it's it's venus or vestus the vestal virgins and uh and the things there so, that's, uh, if you want, the 30-second the, the summary of, of Hislop's book is that virgin mother worship has, has always been around ever since the Tower of Babel, ever since ancient Babylon. And that it was only in the Christian era then that uh, they were forced to adopt Christian names, that they had to take the name of Mary and Jesus to continue their mother worship. Because Constantine came through and said, that's it, all paganism is done, Rome is now a Christian nation. And so all of the worshippers of, of Venus and, and uh, the, the Virgin Mother and the Miracle Baby said, oh, okay, simple enough. We just take the names of Mary and Jesus, we can continue worshipping our Goddess Mother and the, and the Miracle Baby under Christian labels. So, in any event, that's uh, an interesting look there. Let's spend our time on Mary. And uh, one of the things you can do, any believer can do in, uh, in, in personal Bible studies and so forth, is to simply uh, sit down with a Bible and sit down with a Bible dictionary, for example. Um, and there are several good ones out there that I can recommend. This one that I put up on the screen is the, uh, is the International uh, Standard Bible Encyclopedia, or the ISBE, and it is av available over here in our church Library. It's four or five different, I think four different volumes in the church library. And the article on Mary uh, starts off, there's a number of different Marys in the Bible. It starts off with Mary Magdalene. Uh, the second one then is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. They all lived at Bethany. And there's information on her. There's Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. And there's information on her. Mary, the mother of John Mark. That was the home where the prayer meeting was being held in Acts 12 when... Uh, when uh, Peter was released from jail. Um, there's another Mary of Rome that's, that's mentioned in uh, Romans 16.6. 6. The neat part about having these Bible dictionaries and software as opposed to, to book form is that you can simply uh, you know, click the reference that's there and your Bible will turn there for you and you can read it for yourself. Paul says in Romans 16.6, 6, Greet Mary who has worked hard for you. Then the uh, sixth Mary that's outlined for us here in, in ISBE, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, is Mary, the mother of Jesus, and it's broken down into these six sections. Her ancestry, the virgin birth, marital relations, character, separation from her son, and then the final section on Mariology that goes back to the, uh, the uh, idolatrous nature of Mary and her worship by the Roman church today. Um, let's just look at this a little bit. As far as her ancestry is concerned, 
Just as Joseph was descended from David, and we understand that from Matthew 1, 1 through 16, so also was Mary. The genealogy of Luke 3, uh, verses 23 through 38, I do accept as being Mary's genealogy. Not every uh, scholar does, but we have the, the genealogy outlined for us here in Luke 3, 23 through 38. We spent a, a Wednesday on the genealogy of Jesus, and you have handouts on the genealogy of Jesus that are listed there. The... Um, so we see Christ descended from David both in the legal line through his adopted father Joseph and in the physical line through his uh, physical mother Mary. Then uh, the next section in Isbe dealing with Mary focuses on the virgin birth or more accurately the virgin conception that's outlined for us here. Now some of the... Uh, Scripture references here, I think, are very telling, and they refute what we saw last week as the Roman view, the, the eternal virgin. Mary is not the eternal virgin, but the Roman church will teach that, she, uh, that Jesus was conceived in the virgin, and we, we accept that, but that he was born to the virgin, and that she continued to be a virgin uh, pre-partum, partum, and postpartum, and that she would live the rest of her life as a virgin and be called up into heaven as a virgin. All right, and we're going to show you the scriptures that uh, that uh, that speak to that. I think clearly refute it. Obviously, she was a virgin when she was conceived. Uh, Matthew tells us that. Luke tells us that. And all these other things tell us that. Um, uh, the angel has to encourage Joseph not to divorce, not to divorce Mary, because the thing in her that's conceived was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And uh, in Matthew chapter one, he wanted to put her away, but the angel said, "No, don't do that." Um, Matthew 1.18, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, in other words, before they were married and had sex, um, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And uh, Joseph didn't know that, of course, until the angel reveals it to her and or to him. And in verse 20, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And so he responds to the message of the angel. And we'll, we'll spend more time in Matthew 1 when we get to that point in the uh, outline. And uh, we'll see the faith that he had as far as this is concerned. And uh, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. The, um, of course, we accept the... A prophecy by Isaiah 7:14: The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And we realize he had to be born of a virgin for not only fulfillment of prophecy reasons, but for sinless reasons. That in order to escape the sins of the father, in order not to be born with that sin nature as a descendant of Adam, that this process had to be put into place. That otherwise, had Joseph been his real father, then Jesus would have been like everybody else, like you and I. He would have been born with a sin nature. Would have been born in Adam. And having been born in Adam, he would be spiritually dead. So we understand the necessity for the, uh, for the uh, virgin birth. Now the statement that ends this in Matthew, in Matthew one twenty-five, in my mind is conclusive. Because it says that he took her as his wife and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. He kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. In other words, he married her, took her to his home, and throughout that pregnancy, didn't have sex with her, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And it specifically says, until that point. In other words, after that... Just as any other husband and wife, any other marriage and so forth, they engage in sexual activity. It doesn't say he kept her a virgin for the rest of her life. Kept her a virgin forever. It just until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. That verse there tells us that after the birth of Jesus Christ, Joseph and Mary had sex and had other babies. And Scripture tells us who those other children were. James and Joseph, Simon, the four brothers, and at least two sisters that are listed for us in Scripture. Other issues here in the Isbe Encyclopedia that address this. Um, and I'll just skim on down through it. Marital relations. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that Mary was a virgin antipartum, in partu, et postpartum. That is, before birth, during the birth, and after the birth. Can't quite figure that out, <laughs> but that's how the Roman church teaches it. 
The uh, antepartum that is before birth is uh, substantiated in the comments above on the virgin conception. The in partu conception of virginity during birth is based on highly speculative deductions. They can't refer to scripture to back that up. And then the uh, postpartum or perpetual virginity concept is held by some Protestants and was held by many reformers. Calvin even spoke of that in his writings. But scripture does not substantiate it. Uh, some of these other scriptures, I think, as I already mentioned, Matthew 1.25, that give the details as far as when her virginity ended, uh, I think are pretty conclusive. The children that are mentioned are pretty conclusive. The fact that in Luke 2.7, she gave birth to her firstborn son. What does that imply? All right. Sharon gave birth to her firstborn son on July 1st, 1992. But what does that imply? If she never had any other children or any other sons, then it would be unusual or, or awkward at least to say Sharon gave birth to her firstborn son if that's her only son. But by virtue of Alethea coming along, Christopher coming along, Zoe coming along, and other children that followed, then the statement can be made firstborn son. And that's the phrase that we have in Luke 2.7. Then the uh, passages that speak of brothers, including Matthew 12.26. While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Well, where'd they come along from? Okay. Now, the traditions that hold that uh, Mary remained a virgin forever then have to come up with an, uh, with an explanation, and they generally put up the explanation that, well... These were Joseph's children by a previous marriage. Okay, conceivable, possible. But the Bible doesn't tell us anything about Joseph's previous marriage. The Bible doesn't tell us anything about, um, about him having these four sons and two daughters at the point that, uh, you know, was he widowed or, or what happened there? And uh, they're, they're nowhere mentioned when... when uh, uh, Mary gives birth to a son and they have to pack up and flee to Egypt and so forth. All the infancy narratives of Christ seem to indicate that it's Joseph, Mary, and the baby. You know? Well, wh where were those other four brothers and two sisters? And how come we don't see them in the manger if they were Joseph's uh, children by a previous wife? The only They have to invent that or create that logic in order to keep Mary a virgin and to accept that he has brothers and that he has sisters. It's the much more natural understanding that, especially since we know Matthew 125, that her virginity ended after the birth of Jesus, that that's as long as Joseph was willing to wait, that these other children were then born afterwards. Other passages include Mark 3.31, Mark 6.3, Luke 8.19, John 2.12, John 7.3, 5 and 10, Acts 1.14. There are so many places where the brothers of Christ are mentioned that you would think in at least one of them <laughs> if they were truly you know uh, not Mary's children that would have been mentioned and yet it's not in any of those instances I think um, some of these then become interesting as well um, is this not the carpenter in Mark 6.3 Amazed at his teaching, amazed at his message. Is this not the carpenter? And this is a verse, by the way, that tells us he's not only the son of a carpenter, but he himself was a carpenter. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And notice how this verse specifically identifies Jesus' relationship with Mary and the brothers without any kind of clue that those brothers had a different mother. The natural language of this verse puts them all together. James and Joseph and, or Joseph and Judas and Simon. And are not his sisters here with us? However many there are, we don't know. And what their names are, we don't know. But there's at least two of them because they're called sisters, plural. And they took offense at him. <laughs> Who does this carpenter think he is? <laughs> the prophet is not without honor except among his own relatives and in his own household. <coughs> All right. Oh, 
Oh, goodness. <coughs> Allergy season's hit me pretty hard. All right. Much of the Roman Catholic argumentation for the Semper Virgo, that is the always virgin, the eternal virgin, the Semper Virgo concept stems from the thought that sexual abstinence or celibacy is more holy than sexual activity. Remember, this is a church that's trying to promote celibacy. <laughs> this is a church that's trying to promote, of course, the unmarried priests, the unmarried nuns, trying to promote the whole concept of celibacy as somehow being holy. But there is no basis for that idea in either the Old Testament or the New Testament. The natural reading of these several passages is that Mary and Joseph had normal marital relations. And I think, again, Matthew 125 is conclusive because it, it gives the, the terminus for that virginity period. It says, until, until the son was born. That gives the limit of that time. If, uh, if I tell you that this class is going to be conducted until 11 o'clock, well, that's, that's the boundary for that period of time. And uh, beyond that, then, the, the circumstances are, are no longer applicable. That's the whole nature of setting a time reference with the, uh, a word such as until. All right, the fourth section of Isby's Encyclopedia on Mary breaks down her character. And um, a lot of this I'll just pass over this morning because I think we'll, uh, we'll just allow that to unfold for itself as we cover these things uh, chapter by chapter. The fifth section, though, I thought was very interesting. It was titled Separation from Her Son. Is that every time Mary appears after the birth, um, and there's not that many, but in the instances where we see Mary in the Gospels, what we are observing in every single instance is a degree of separation. A degree of separation in one way or another. Um, if you think about the time... Well, let's just go through them. Uh, Let's go to Luke 2. Let's look at uh, the, the boy in the temple here. won't take us long this morning to look at the appearances of Mary in the Gospels. She doesn't appear that often in the Gospels. She got a lot more screen time in the Passion than, uh, than the Gospels would indicate. All right, Luke 2, the boy Jesus in the temple, verses 41 through 51. And um, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it. All right. So this whole idea of Mary clinging to her son and never being more than three feet from him doesn't necessarily pan out, but supposed him to be in the caravan. In other words, he was somewhere among the extended relatives, somewhere among the family, somewhere among the, uh, the pilgrims from Nazareth to, uh, to Jerusalem. And went a day's journey and then began, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished, they, both father and mother. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? Joseph remained silent. We'll deal with this in more detail, uh, why Joseph does not speak at this point. Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, both of them, not just answering his mother, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. We'll spend more time on this verse by verse in greater detail here. Um, but you'll notice, verse 51, He went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart that we start to see even at the age of 12 a separation begin to appear as Jesus started to accept and understand his role and started to proceed towards that. The second time Mary appears is at the wedding in Luke in John 2. John 2, verses 1 through 12. 
where Christ is once again going to ask her a question that she cannot answer, where he has information that she does not comprehend. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. All right. There's information on this available in the Through the Bible notebook and also in the Gospel of John study that we did so long ago at this point. But she has an expectation now that he's been baptized, now that he started his public ministry, now that he started to gather disciples, she has an expectation as far as how his ministry is going to go, and she does not understand what he has to do or why he has to do it. And uh, this becomes an interesting chapter here as well. So that's the wedding at Cana, second time that she appears. And far from being the grand mediatrix of all creation and far from having all this exalted and holy nature and far from uh, all these things going on we see a very real picture of a very real human mother and uh, quite an interesting view of the scripture all right the third time we see mary occur is in matthew mark and luke not in john let's just go to matthew 12 46 through 50 Matthew 12, 46-50. Notice Jesus Christ is teaching Bible class and Mary is not in that Bible class. <laughs> Alright? Don't know why, don't know what she's doing, don't know where they're coming from. We just simply observe that she's not in Bible class. And is uh, outside the Bible class waiting for Him to get done teaching so that... Uh, he can come out and she's got something to tell him. We don't know what it was, but it's described here in these terms. While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. All right? Not in the Bible class, but desiring to speak to him once his class is done. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Now, he's not... He's not rejecting them at this point, but he's using this occasion to illustrate and to teach a principle. Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. And he is contrasting an earthly family with a spiritual family. And it doesn't say that he, you know, blew them off, rejected them, had nothing to do with them at that point. We assume when chapter 12 comes to a close that he does go outside and find out what his mom wants and finds out what his brothers want. Remember, his brothers are unbelievers at this point of time. I think John 7 makes that very clear. So, interesting issues there. Reading from Isby now, It is only by understanding the spirit of independence from his mother that Jesus' reply to his mother and brothers can be understood. When they tried to see him, it was not out of discourtesy that he pointed to his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Rather, he wanted to impress on his mother and brothers that they must become his spiritual daughter and sons. I disagree with that. I think that Mary was already a believer at that point in time, although the brothers were not. Uh, then we have Mary at the cross. Matthew, or let's go to John 19, 25 through 27. So you're following all this. We have age 12 at the temple. We have interrupting Bible class at some point in time in the Galilean ministry. And then we have the cross. Oh, I forgot the wedding. All right, the, the 12 years old at the temple, the, the water to wine, miracle at the wedding, interrupting Bible class, and the cross. Four times that we see Mary in the Gospels. Not a whole lot. And certainly not a lot to, uh, you know, exalt her as the Queen of Heaven and pray to her and all the rest. If you want to add the fifth account, you can see here at Pentecost in the upper room with the brothers of Christ, with the apostles, listening to the apostles' teaching, a part of the Bible study that's going on there. All right. Yes, sir. Uh, Some apocryphal works. Uh, There's a lot of things that developed in the Middle Ages on, on Mary. 
on on her legends and things, but not uh, not in scripture. Yeah, not in scripture. And that's uh, again not surprising because so much of of pagan worship was focused on the virgin mother to begin with, even prior to the cross. And much of the uh, Mary traditions came from a Catholic mystic in the 19th century anyway, and some dreams that she had about Mary and things like that. Yes, ma'am? I have a question on Catholic Bible. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yes, Catholic Bibles today, I have two back in my office. Um, Catholic Bibles today are similar to ours. They have the 66 books. In between the Testaments, they have apocryphal works as well. Um, and they have a terrible translation of Genesis 3 where uh, it is the woman herself that crushes the serpent's head. They uh, say she shall crush the serpent's head and they view the, the, the woman as, as being the serpent crusher instead of the seed of the woman as being the serpent crusher. But they don't. <laughs> See, the, the, and for, for centuries, of course, the 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 Vulgate in Latin only the priests were in the scriptures and and the people were not reading the scriptures they were just listen to the priest and follow the ritual follow the liturgy and so forth and uh, ultimately the spark of the Great Reformation was putting the putting the scriptures into the into the vulgar languages of the people and what Wycliffe and Tyndale did putting the scriptures into English what Luther did putting the scriptures into German uh, were uh, and letting people read the Bible for themselves, you know, more than anything else, I think in human terms, led to people reading the Bible saying, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, I don't need some priest to mediate between me and God, and wait a minute, you know, salvation's not in ritual, not in church, salvation's by faith through Jesus Christ. So, you're confusing things, and we all do it, because, well, we read the Bible, and that's what it says. But keep in mind that, for the most part, the, uh, the, uh, even to, to this day, the liturgical churches, you know, how much does your average Lutheran actually read the Bible for themselves? Or the average uh, uh, Presbyterian or the average Episcopalian or the average Catholic? It's just a matter of participating in the rituals, being baptized, being confirmed, being married, going through the, the, uh, the different elements of the, of the liturgy and uh, participating in the church and listening to the, to the priest. So that's... Uh, that's an interesting issue there too. All right, the last. Uh, let's look at the cross here in John 19. They handed him over to be crucified, and verse 25, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now I believe that's four different women. Uh, when you compare this gospel with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you can do some good homework. In fact. Just go ahead and do that this afternoon or sometime this week. Go to the gospel narratives, each one, and write down who the women were. And, uh, and then you have to ask yourself, were there three women standing there or were there four women standing there? Uh, you have his mother and his mother's sister. Now, some people think that his mother's sister was Mary, the wife of Clopas, and then Mary Magdalene, in which case there's only three women mentioned there. I think there were four women mentioned there, particularly when you relate it to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And you start charting out who were these women standing there at the cross. And uh, go ahead and do that homework and you'll have a lot of fun. And you'll find out that Mary's sister was, in fact, the mother of James and John. And that's why we think that James and John, the sons of thunder, were cousins, uh, earthly cousins to the humanity of Jesus Christ. And uh, Mary Magdalene, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold her son. Now, this isn't an insulting address to call her woman. This is like ma'am today or like it's it's a respectful address. And that's how he addressed her at the wedding, by the way, in John 2. You might have noticed that he called her woman. It'd be like saying ma'am. But it does form a difference, you know calling your own mother that, there's a little bit of a distance there. And uh, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. And John, by all church traditions, uh, lived in Jerusalem. Did not When the other apostles departed, John did not. He remained in Jerusalem until such time as Mary died. And then he was then able to, to go forth and travel in his own apostolic ministry. So there's the view on the cross. And again, it's distance 
distance. That I'm dying and going to heaven and John is going to take care of your needs now until, you know, as a widow and until such time as you die and go to heaven, which there's something else the Catholic Church doesn't teach because she, in Roman teaching, she was exalted and caught up into heaven herself without experiencing physical death. All right. These were our glimpses of Mary. The last one I'll show you is in Acts chapter 1. And they're in the upper room. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were uh, staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew. These are the eleven that are mentioned for us in verse 13. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So they're having prayer meeting. They're having Bible class. And Mary is simply one of the crowd, one of the women uh, that are present with the eleven and with the brothers. And then Peter stands up in the midst of the brethren, gathering about 120 persons, and goes on into his ministry there in verses 16 and following. So she's a believer. She's a believer under teaching. She's a believer uh, that's a part of the body of Christ. It's a part of the church. In no way does she have an exalted position in, uh, in this context or anywhere else in the book of Acts. In fact, she disappears after this in the book of Acts. All right? If she was truly that exalted position, you'd think that some reference would be made concerning her. All right. So this is... Let me just check Isby, make sure there's nothing else I wanted to spotlight here. But you see the convenience of having something like software here, uh, where you can just... Like where it says, Mary and the Apostles... The separation of Mary from her son found its fulfillment in her spiritual union with him. Luke provided this final glimpse when he stated that after the ascension, Mary joined in the continual prayer with the apostles, Acts 1.14. And there you can just click on it and opens up Acts 1.14. And by the way, if you wanted to... Um, all this time we've been doing this, you didn't realize that we had not only an English Bible, but a Greek Bible that we're following along when we click Acts 1.14. And so you can look at your English Bible, you can look at your Greek Bible, and you can see each of these texts as you come to them. Um, nothing more is recorded of her, even though in the judgment of many, Luke's infancy narrative indicates that he had received this information from her and therefore had been close to her. Keep in mind, Luke was not a disciple. Luke was not an eyewitness of these things. Luke was a Gentile physician who started following the Apostle Paul in Acts 16. And so while Paul is in Caesarea, Caesarea for two years in prison, Luke is free to travel throughout all of Palestine and travel throughout all the region and interview these eyewitness accounts. And undoubtedly interviewed Mary to get this, to get the infancy narrative we have in Luke 2. And so I find that uh, quite telling. Um, Luke's infancy narrative indicates that he had received this information from her and therefore had been close to her. Mary had fulfilled her task of bearing the Messiah. Once her work was done, she had to join other believers and be like them. When Luke recorded Peter's Pentecostal speech or Paul's work, he made no reference to Mary. Her place was in the church, not in heaven, as the dispensatrix of all grace. John's treatment of her in his gospel proclaims the same truth. John 19.27 reports that from the time of the crucifixion, John took her into his home. If any apostle could have told a great deal about Mary, it was John. Yet he mentioned her only twice, the wedding of Cana and here at the cross. And on both occasions, instead of exalting her, he brought out that she was subservient to her son. This fits in perfectly with the purpose of his gospel, John 20:31. These things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. All right, then the last, uh, the last section of the Isby Encyclopedia is on Mariology and how she's exalted and how she's worshipped and the things like that. But we are out of time for this day. And as I say, Isby is over here in the church library. There's a copy in the church library. There's a copy in, in my library back there in the office. So there's plenty of copies around. And if you want to, uh, want to read more on that, that can be made available as well. All right, any final questions before we close in prayer? This is the last I'm going to deal with, Mary. We'll move on next week and actually take you verse by verse through Luke 1 and uh, take you to the uh, meeting of Mary with the cousins and, and uh, gain some real ground then in the life of Christ study. 
All right. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness in our lives. And I do pray, Father, that um, particularly uh, for those in our family and friends and associates that are still uh, participating in the Roman church, Father, I, I pray that uh, you would give us a heart of uh, mercy, a tender heart to reach out with the gospel, to reach out with the truth, understanding that there are truly born again believers in the Roman Catholic Church. But, Father, also understanding that there is so much false doctrine and so much false teaching that, um, Father, these are believers that, that need accurate, clear Bible teaching. And I pray that you would empower and motivate each one of us to go forward with an accurate message, always being ready to give an account to those who ask us for the hope of our calling. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.